0: I invite you to join with me in a word of prayer before I preach. Holy Spirit of God, I ask you to come. Come into this room to the hearts of each one of us, to those who are watching at home. I pray that you would empower us to live the life of discipleship. And Lord, I ask that you would help me preach and lend understanding to the truth of Scripture. For I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in the midst of this pandemic, our older daughter, Hannah, decided when she realizes that her high school career was going to end abruptly, and she had some weeks and months on her hand, that she was going to pick up the guitar. She wanted to learn the acoustic guitar. So I dusted off my old guitar that had been hanging on the wall, literally covered in dust, and uh, gave Hannah a couple of lessons. And since then, she and I have been, you know, playing the guitar a little bit. And I've, I've tinkered with that instrument for like 25 years or something, uh, learning the first four measures of every classic rock rock song ever written and nothing beyond those four measures. And I had an out-of-body experience because I picked up the guitar and I was trying to remember part of Bach's song or his version of the song, Boré. Of course, I only Back then, only learned the first four measures of it, but I couldn't get past the third note, and I was thinking, what comes next, what comes next? And then the out-of-body experience was, I just played the first three notes real fast, and automatically the rest of the first four measures came out. And I was watching my hand do it, thinking, I'm not doing that. I'm not actually playing those notes. It is just coming out of me. It's out of, it's, it was in there like muscle memory and like a habit. And you, you know that. That happens in other places in your life. I like to think of the driving one. You know, you have a stressful day at work. You drive home, and you're in your garage, and you think, how did I get home? You didn't ever think, wait, is this pedal the one that makes me go forward or this one the one that makes me stop? You don't think, if I push up, will the right turn signal go on or the left one? All of that is just habitual. And I bring that illustration up to start this morning because I want to ask If you are, I want to make the distinction in this sermon between merely doing good things and actually becoming good so that the things you do flow out of who you naturally are. You see, the gospel message is not a message about bad people becoming better. It's a message about dead people becoming made alive in Christ And let me show you two important scriptures. They're very, I think they're important, but they're particularly important to me. Um, One is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where he says this. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead and in Christ, we became alive. And I want to jump back and just read two verses from Ezekiel, Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, God speaking through the prophet says this, "'I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules.'" God, in making you a new creation in Christ, is actually putting his law into your heart and causing you both to want to live it and gradually, increasingly so, have the ability to live it. I'm talking here about becoming good. Not just doing good things, but becoming good. And to become good, it requires both heart and habits. So God says, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to put my law in your heart. I'm going to give you a desire to do my things. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. But do you know what happens to a person? All the old habits of life up to that point are still present. The good ones and the bad ones. And so then we have to begin to rework all of our habits. This sermon series that we're doing is on the Sermon on the Mount, and we called it a mountain climber's guide to the Sermon on the Mount because what Jesus is teaching here is varsity, It's tough. This is top level. And it does need a guide. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. It's not a new law. It's a description of the character of the person whose heart has been transformed, who is now living in the presence of the kingdom. And it's about practicing to form the habits of the new person that Christ has made you. And Jesus is teaching in the section today from Matthew 6 on three things that he wants you to do to form habits. He's talking in here about giving, about praying, and about fasting. Three of the multiple spiritual disciplines that are out there, but have been part of Christianity and even Judaism for thousands of years. And motivation here is central. Why would you do these things? Just because you ought to, because he tells you you're supposed to, or is there something more? Motivation is what he's getting at in this section. And I asked you an opening question at the beginning of worship. I asked you if your main thought of God was as God as a judge or of God as a father. And we're going to see that there's an important difference here. Because what Jesus is advocating, and my main point today, is practice for an audience of one. Practice your righteousness. Work on your habits for God's approval as your father not just your judge. So chapter six, it's a major transition here. Last week, we finished up chapter five. And in there, we saw that Jesus was talking about misinterpretations of the law. You have heard it taught, but I say to you. And he went through a whole number of different things. I think there were six of them in there. And then today, he's dealing with wrong audience and wrong motives. You're doing it for your own glory and you're doing it for the praise of man. I'm saying do it for my glory, And do it in secret to my attention. Get the right audience and the right motivation. Verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So he doesn't say beware of practicing your righteousness. He doesn't say beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people. He says beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people in order to be seen. He's dealing with motives here. What's your purpose in doing the thing that you're doing? And he gives three examples. He uses those three, giving, praying, and fasting. And he's not being exhaustive here. He's giving illustrations of areas where you might be tempted to work for the approval of others rather than the approval of God. And I marvel at how masterful Jesus's teaching is. This is so balanced, chapter six, and so symmetrical. And and it's, you know, it has three. And anytime there are three things they are easier to remember, a three-point sermon. Our minds seem to work that way. Our God is a trinity of persons. He's got three examples, and he three times uses the, the, the word others or father. He uses three times the word hypocrite, and he's very balanced in this. And it's fairly comprehensive in terms of dimensions, up, in, and out. The praying is our vertical dimension in our relationship with our father, The out is our mercy and our charity and our alms and gifts to those who are in need, our service to the world. And then in is the spiritual transformation of sanctification, to use a big church word, of becoming like God. So up, in, and out. He picks that up very comprehensively. And he says, if I act religiously or act in a holy way just to be seen by people, that's my reward that they saw me and commented, good job, Mike. You're really a prayerful person. You're so articulate when you pray. I love when you pray. You're so good at this. Or, wow, aren't you generous? You give more than a tithe? What? How? Oh, I wish I could be like you. You're amazing. Okay, that was my reward. That, that was it right there. Sorry, nothing else. That was, that's all I get. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Do you know what skeptics' top criticism is of the church and of Christians? When skeptics look in at Christianity and complain about it and say why they don't want to engage with the gospel, do you know what they say? Oh, Christians are all hypocrites. Nine o'clock service got it too. It's so obvious because it's heard so often. Do you know what I think is interesting? Jesus is actually the one that gave the skeptics that slur. Hypocrite is a technical term for actors in ancient theater. They're stage actors playing out a drama. They would put a mask on, <laughs> funny, so they could hide what they really looked like underneath and they would act out the part, but everybody knew they were actors. And off the stage, they'd take their mask off and they look, you know, however they actually were. And he took it and used it to speak of people who were being deceitful. They were pretending. They were acting. And that's what the, the skeptics say. They look in at a church of people that are play acting. I'm pretending to be holier than I really am and that's not discipleship that's being hypocritical and Jesus gave them the judgment because i think he knew our temptation to work for the praise of mankind instead of the praise of our heavenly father so he says there are three kinds of hypocrites in these three examples giving praying and fasting don't be like the hypocrites when they give they sound a trumpet i think they literally made some kind of a noise so that the the poor people would come out from their hiding places and their their poor homes to know that there were alms being given out. So they actually made some kind of a loud noise. But the givers that he's describing loved it. It served two purposes. Yeah, they came out, but everybody else saw that I was giving. Look how generous I am when I give to my charities. And we've got to ask ourselves, do I love seeing my name in whatever donor level on the back of the brochure at the fundraising event? Do I love knowing that I'm in the top whatever bracket of the thing, and my name is on the brick in the pavement? There's a real temptation for us to want the praise of man to be recognized as a generous person. He's saying, "Don't do that." And then the way they pray. Consider how the hypocrites pray. They go out to the street corners and they pray loudly and very prominently in a in a display of their holiness. Don't be like that. They want to be seen. Don't do that consider how they fast. They disfigure their faces and they go around very sad looking and they're tired and they're fast. I'm fasting. And, you know, people think, wow, guy always looks like that. He must be fasting all the time. Don't do that. That's not not helpful. That's not even what fasting is about. He says, but you, when you give, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand has given. Give it in secret. Try to hide it. Your father nothing can be hidden from him. He sees what you give and he will reward you. Now, of course, you have to write a check and you have to plan your giving. You have to think through some of that stuff. But, you know, personally, I love things like I've made my plan and online giving, it automatically goes every two weeks. So I don't even have to think about it. So my left hand doesn't know what my right hand does. But see what I just did? I told you that I use online giving and I give regularly. There goes my reward right there. So you have to be super careful about this one. Or The prayer one, you know, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is about cultivating intimacy with God as your heavenly father, learning a prayer conversation, caring more about walking with him than just performing for him. It's about doing it together. See, he's the one who made your heart new if you're a Christian, and he's also the one who's going to empower you to learn these new habits. He's going to teach you to pray. He's going to be waiting in that room for you to show up. He's always there, and he loves it when we come to him. And then the, the last one on fasting, he's saying, anoint your head, wash. You know, in our case, you know, use a breath mint and smile. And don't look exhausted. You're missing the point here. The point about fasting was about relying on God as your provision, And having spiritual nourishment and not just needing food. Now, wait a minute. You say, there's a paradox here. I have a a problem. Because didn't back in chapter 5 he say this? He said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives its light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, which is it? Do I do it so that others can see it or do I hide it in secret? Jesus seems to be confusing me here. Well, both. And let me tell you how you determine if you're doing it right. Where is the glory going? That's the question. Where is the glory going? See, let your light shine so they will give glory to your Father in heaven, not to you. So, when they see you do something really well, you're very generous you need to deflect immediately. Wow, God is empowering me to do this. Only by God's grace is this happening in my life. We have to be super quick about giving the glory to God. And the same thing over here in in the secret place, it's all about God's glory because obviously he knows that you care more about him than anything else because no one else can see what you're doing. It's you and God. That's it. God is at work in you. And the true heck, true, uh, the true heart will deflect glory to where it belongs. I think it was Corey Tenboom who once was praised for some of God's work in her life, and they were praising her. And she's the one who said, do you think for one minute that donkey thought they were cheering for him? That's the triumphal entry of Jesus. He rode into the holy city on a donkey, and they were crying, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, you know, a fool of a donkey might think, look how great I am. The whole city's cheering for me. No, it's Jesus is riding on your back, my friend. They're cheering for him. That's what's happening when we actually are becoming good. Jesus is doing work through us, and he deserves the glory. Practice your righteousness for an audience of one. Now, I want to point out that in this passage, God goes by many different names out there, but in this passage, 10 times, you can count them, 10 times Jesus refers to him as your father, not your judge. It'd be very different if he said, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your judge who is counting how many words you've used, which prayers and how sincere you are. And a judge does things like that. Counts, is aware. God knows the number of hairs on your head. But what he focuses on here is the fatherness of God. He's not just your judge. He's also your heavenly father. And he wants us to understand that relationship. Like a father raising up a child, he is cheering for your growth and development. He's doing everything he can to help you. He's not standing in judgment and counting. That's what Santa Claus does. He's, checking, he's making his list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. That's what a judge does. But as a father, he's cheering for your success. He's in there waiting for you. He's working with you on this. One of the things that Satan did early on, that was so harmful is he distorted humanity's view of God, the character of God. In Genesis chapter 3, I'm just going to read the first verse. He says, it says this, now the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, actually, if you know the story, God said, here's this garden, eat of any tree you want in it, except for this one over here, just this one. Everything else is yours. And what Satan did is made God look like a miser, made him look mean and controlling and not generous and kind, and confused Adam and Eve, and thus the fall of man and us in their wake. Instead of seeing God for who he is, Satan deceived, and now we don't see him right. In fact, there's another way that we've been deceived. If you're in the evangelical side of things in the church, you've been accurately told that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own work. It's a gift from God. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. That you are saved by grace. And here's the deception. Therefore, there's nothing left for you to do. God did it all. You have no part to play. You just merely yield your life to him, pray the sinner's prayer, and receive Christ, and it's all taken care of. That is a huge deception. And here's the truth. Grace is opposed to earning, not opposed to effort. And there's a big distinction. Earning says, God, I'm learning how to give, pray, and fast. Look how good I'm doing. You owe me. I deserve this. I've cleaned up my life. Now I can go to church. Now I can become a Christian. Now I can be accepted by God because I've got God in my debt. He's in my pocket now. But grace doesn't say that at all. It's all been paid for. But now there's a ton of work to do. He invites you into the life of discipleship. It's not if you choose to pray, it's when you pray. It's fully expected that we are going to practice our righteousness and grow so that our outer behavior starts to match the truth of who God says we are on the inside. Become in habit what God says you are in heart. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation so, live your life for an audience of one. And that sounds like pray- prayers kind of sound like this Father, I want to become generous. Why, why do I have such a hard time giving away money? Why do I not have mercy for the poor? God, I see your heart has mercy for the poor, and I want to be like that. How can we work on this together? What specifically should I do? It, it's like this God, I want to hear your voice in prayer. I know other Christians that seem to dwell more closely with you. They have more intimacy. I want to become like that. Lord, what can I do in my prayer life to hear you? How can I set aside more time? I want to see your face, Lord. I want to show me your glory. Help me desire you above all things. And with the fasting one, God, I want your spiritual nourishment. And I want to grow in self-control. I'm tired of letting my body's physical desires control my entire soul. It's out of order. Help me get it back in order. You know, when Jesus fasted, uh, one of of the instances happens around the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And the disciples go into town to get some lunch, and Jesus is there at noon. And when they come back, they try to give him food, and he he declines it, and he says, I have food to eat you know nothing of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And they're confused about this, and as they often are, they're thinking down here on the the very physical level, and Jesus has taken them to a spiritual truth. in the conversation with the woman at the well, he wasn't dour and downcast. And he's like, Oh man, lady, I am so hungry. He didn't, there was none of that. You you didn't even know that he hadn't eaten. And the truth is it's because he wasn't feeling a hunger because he was nourished by God's presence. He was learning to feast on God, even though he was fasting from food, he had perfect self-control over his body's desires. His body was in submission to his will. God, help me be like that. How can I learn that? I want to grow in that habit. And the Lord will have to lead you. Now, I'm going to pray in in closing. And I want to invite you, um, as we sing the sermon response song, to to make it your prayer. Um, It's sort of interesting how the song came about. There's a song from 20-something years ago. And it's called In the Secret. Or in the Secret Place. It's about it's from inspired from developing that inner intimacy with God. And when Rob Eccles and I sat down to plan today, I, I said, there's this song that would be great as a sermon response song, but you know, I, I'm sure you don't know it. It's called In the Secret, and I, I learned it years ago. And he, he pulled up his sheet. He was sitting there, and he goes, you mean this one? He had it written down already as our sermon response song. So I think maybe the Lord gave it to us. You might not know it, but it's easy to catch on to it. But I want you to make it your prayer. God, I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. And if that doesn't describe your actual prayer, I invite you to step one step back and say, God, I want to want to hear your voice. I want to want to see your face. Ask him to help you even with your desires. He's on your side with this. And he is the audience that matters and the only one. So music team, come on up here. I'm going to say a prayer and then we'll sing that song. Lord, I thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. I thank you for the call to discipleship and even the cost of it. Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger for transformation, that you would make us honest before you, help us to bring our bad habits and our hesitations and our wrong motivations and attitudes and all that and give it to you. We want the secret reward. We want you, Lord, and we want what you want for us. Help us in the gap. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.